Happy December 1st. We trust that everybody had a good Thanksgiving. And if you're tired of eating that leftover turkey, it's kind of getting old. It don't taste good no more. Brian, what can they do? Well, of course, as always, what they should do and could do is go to Lazari Italian Oven. Lazari Italian Oven is not like most restaurants that are stingy with that bread, and you got to ask them four or five times before you get your first loaf. Lazari's will hook you up from the moment you get set down. In fact, they may even bring it for your drinks. I don't know. I ain't no telling what was going to happen when you go to Lazari's, but except for you are going to have a good time. You need to call them today. Their number is 870-931-4700. Again, that is Lazari Italian Oven. Order something to go, go in, dine in, get a reservation. Holidays are coming up. Schedule a, a business Christmas party with Lazari's, and they're going to hook you up with some great Italian food. We also have a presenting sponsor, which is AwesomeScores.com. The ACTs are coming up. Let's get prepared this time. Last time you weren't prepared, it's time to get prepared. Go to AwesomeScores.com. You can take the full course. It was $2.99. Put in promo code CRUCIAL and get it for $1.99. You heard that right. $100 off just for being a part of our family. Go to awesomescores.com, put in promo code CRUCIAL. And if you don't need to study the entire course, you can do each course individually. Normally, that's $1.99. Brian, we're going to take care of our listeners. $99 for that. Go to awesomescores.com, put in promo code CRUCIAL, and get it for $100 off. Tell me about Anderson Heat and Air, Brian. Tony, I like how you said that the crucial conversation were a family. And I don't want anyone out there to be the black sheep of the family. Nobody wants to come over to your house because your air don't work right. And whenever it kicks on, you have this musky odor coming through the house because something's messed up in there. Listen, don't have your family coming over to Christmas looking forward to leaving because the house is so cold. Their drink's freezing in the cup. You ain't even got to have no ice. You know, you, there's always that member of the family. You got to text them and say, hey, bring a bag of ice. But if they come over to your house, you know they ain't got nothing because your heat don't work. But we can change all that with Anderson Heat and Air. The number for Ned Anderson and Anderson Heat and Air is 870-664-1967. Again, that number is 870-664-1967. No more black sheep of the family, but you're going to be the warm sheep when they fix that heater. You know what? Christmas is coming around. Stop getting your kids those junk toys. Go to our friends at Jonesboro Cycle and ATV here in Jonesboro. Hey, you may not live in this area. Go online. They deliver. Do you find anything you like? Go put in promo code CRUCIAL. Get 10% off of anything you want. That's Jonesboro Cycle and ATV. They have everything from go-karts, golf carts, motorcycles, dirt bikes, four-wheelers, side-by-sides. It doesn't matter. You can protect the head with some helmet gear, some goggles. You can get anything you need there. 10% off with the promo code CRUCIAL. And if you go by, go in there, tell Ben and Hammett we said hello, tell them you listened to the show and that's how you heard about us. You can call them at 870-935-2887 or go by and see them at 2800 Fair Park Boulevard in Jonesboro or jonesborocycle.com. You need to invest in your future, and there's no better investment you can get than a brand new home. And a home that is going to, whenever you, it's time for you to move, when you follow the will of God, that is going to be able to earn you a profit. And so what you really need to do is be able to get into the perfect home for your future, or even, if, it, like I said, if you want to sell, that's going to earn you a profit. The person that's going to help you find the perfect home for you and for your future is going to be Dustin Thomas at Live Oak Real Estate. Uh, the number to call them is 870 202522 and you need to go online and check out their inventory see what all they can do go to listwithiveoak.com and they are going to give you all of the direction that you need in purchasing 
your home. Brian, I don't know if we were hurting for a guest this episode, but I'm glad, if we were, that we was. We sat down with my mother-in-law, Kim Ramsey, and we had such a great conversation, Brian. We had something that was absolutely awesome. Uh, We enjoyed everything that she had to say. Um, Very impactful. Yeah, everything that you just said. Uh, This was one podcast that you're certainly not going to want to miss, which you're here, so you've already made the first step, which is correct. You need to be here, and you need to listen through, because this one is is certainly going to pull at your heartstrings. If God has taught me anything, He has taught me that it's His love that makes a difference. Um, I remember in our early years of ministry, doing bus ministry, there was a little boy that was in my Sunday school class, and he was a rough kid. His name was Brian. I'll never forget him. He liked to fight. Sometimes he would pick fights. Uh, he was a very loud, uh, obnoxious kid and uh, just always getting on your nerves, causing distraction. And I remember praying, God, change that kid. Change that kid. And God just spoke to me softly and said, you're the one that needs to change. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Okay, Brian. We uh, we must be hurting for entertainment tonight. You know why? We're sitting down with my mother-in-law tonight. You know, you, you're always at a really dark place whenever you're praying, God, can you give me a prophetic word? I'll even, I'll even accept it if it comes from my mother-in-law. That, that's a pretty low place. <laughs> but with you, Tony, is an exception because your, your mother-in-law is a woman of God. Uh, Sister Kim, thank you for sitting down with us and talking to us. Uh, Tony, why don't you uh, fill us in on some backstory here on, on how you got to know the Ramses? Well, me and Meredith met and. I don't know what year that would have been, 2010, I guess. And whenever we got to talking, she told me that her parents were children's evangelists, which is pretty unique to me because just a few summers before, I had spent the uh, the summer traveling with a different children's evangelist, um, Dale and Vicki Hera. We traveled around quite a bit different places, and I just thought it was unique because I always felt like um, from an early age, it would be so cool to be involved in something like that. And it's pretty much what I got married into. So, Kim, take a little bit of time and tell us about your story. Where, where, How did you and David get started in children's ministry? Uh, hey, before that, though, what is the th- number one thing about Tony that gets on your nerves? I said, what is something... Uh, <laughs> I'd have to think really hard. <laughs> is, is there There's just so, so many things. <laughs> so many, oh, man, there are so many things that could we'll be edit, we'll edit. Here. We'll edit this out. No, no, this guy, this is staying in. I want this in the podcast. I'm oh, this out. man. Yeah, but uh, as Tony asked, uh, fill us in on some of this backstory there. Well, um, I met David when his dad had passed away, and uh, his sister was actually married to my brother at the time, but I had never met David. I think he must have been in California during all of that time, and... Uh, my oldest brother was like six years older than me. So, anyway, I don't remember you have a ever. Brother? You have a brother? 
I have three brothers. I ask because every time Tony finds out that my <laughs> wife has a brother, he always asks. It's an inside joke. So it's an inside <laughs> joke there. Yes, I have three brothers and no sisters. But anyway, um, and so I never had met David. And when his father passed away, they asked me to sing at the funeral. And so that was my first initial um, time of meeting David. And then I remember me and my cousins went to his house, and we invited him to come to church. And he started coming to church, but he was more or less coming because he was interested in me. And uh, so he came for about nine months, uh, but he never did make any move towards God until about nine months, and that's when he came to God. But he, I know a little bit of the story. He didn't, Pentecostal wasn't really the only thing he studied. He studied some pretty pretty broad things. What were some of those things that David studied? Uh, he studied Buddhism. He had actually been um, raised as Baptist, but his parents never went, but he did ride a bus uh, to the Baptist church. But he had a notebook that he, and I didn't know about any of this as far that, as that until later on. But he uh, had studied all these different religions, and he had a notebook that he called Search for Truth. And uh, at, when that nine-month period came around, that he, uh, he had come for, like I said, nine months. And uh, my grandmother, on occasion, would go and ask David if he would like to pray. And he always turned her down. And so it was a Wednesday night. And uh, I'll never forget my grandmother. We always called her Ma. She was telling us that God had told her to go and ask David to pray that night. And she said she argued with God. She said, God, I have gone and asked him several times, and he never has gone to pray. But finally, God, you know, kept dealing with her to do that. So she went and she asked David to pray. But what she did not know and what David did not know is that God began to use her in the gifts of the word of knowledge. And uh, she began to tell him about the notebook and his search for truth. And he knew then that this was God. And so he went and prayed that night, and he was baptized in the name of Jesus. And then that following Sunday, he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Was it something he felt that he knew this was real or... Or what do you think it was that made him know that this is, this is, I found the truth? I think by her knowing things about his life that he knew that no one knew about except God. And I think that made him understand and realize that this was truth. Because he had searched so many different things, but never an experience like this had ever happened to him before. So let me ask you a question. Um there is a uh, a theory out there that you have to be at church to get the Holy Ghost. Can you debunk that statement? Uh, yes. I actually was raised in the church, and my mom would take me and my brothers to church. And I remember at a young age, as early as five years old, going to the altar and seeking the Holy Ghost and praying that God would fill me. And I remember leaving, and I would not receive the Holy Ghost. And I did that for many, many times in my early years of life. And, but I didn't walk away with nothing. I still received something from God every time I was there. But I remember I was about nine years old, and uh, my cousins and I were going to have a slumber party at uh, my cousin's house who lived right next door. And it was on their back porch, which was an enclosed porch. 
uh, and my aunt and, and uncle and everyone had gone to bed, but it was just all of us kids in, on that back porch. And we began to play church, and we were singing and just playing around, singing worship songs like we sang at church. And uh, my cousin Roxanne was even going to be the preacher, but uh, all of a sudden we realized that we weren't playing anymore. And uh, we had become very serious in our worship to God, and God met us there, and God filled me with the Holy Ghost. So what was your teen years like, you know, growing up, and um, how you got the Holy Ghost? Was your parents in church, or how, how did that come about? My mom was in the church, and she always made sure that we were there for every event. If there was a youth outing going on, or a youth service, or... Uh, we had like a little youth uh, building, kind of like a small gym, and if there was something going on, she would always make sure that we were there, and that was a hardship on her because we lived kind of out in the country, and so we were, it was about a 30-minute drive. But anyway, something that was very unique uh, at our church is when you turned 12 years old, you became into the youth age. and What they, church was that? It was the First United Pentecostal Church in Blyville, and it was at West Rose and Maple Street is where it was located at that time. And uh, when you turned 12 years old, you could sign up to be a, in charge of the Wednesday night service, and it was like over the whole congregation. And so they would do their few little worship songs, and then that person who had signed up to be a part of that uh, they were in charge of leading that service. And so I remember as young as 12 years old, even though I was terrified to do it, I did sign up. And it, it taught me to dig into the Word. It taught me to pray and ask God for uh, direction for that service. And whatever the theme was, you know, we would go by that. We'd get different people to read parts. Uh, I remember one of the, the ones that I did, the name of it was Darkness. And we used black lights and stuff to kind of make that enhanced. But it was talking about the light of Jesus and how uh, it can change our life from being in a dark place into the light of Jesus Christ. And uh, so that just taught me a lot of things. I sang in a quartet. What? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I sang in a quartet. Uh, Bill Sharp was uh, the adult leader, basically. And uh, we had... Several, matter of fact, his son Phil sang with us. He sang the bass. Uh, I sang the alto, and then we had several ones. Bobby Lloyd, my cousin, sang uh, tenor for for one time, and then another time it was Gary Cripps. But anyway, I sang in that quartet for quite a few years. Matter of fact, most of my teen years probably, and I was very involved in the choir. Um, youth outings, we did a lot of different youth outings too. So you talked about your mom. What about your dad? My dad did not come into the church. He was, his matter of fact, his grand, his mother, my grandmother, Ma, um, she had a unique experience uh, in coming into the truth. She always believed that there were two different gods. And uh, she had a dream one night. They, what they were doing, they didn't actually even have a church building. And they would travel from house to house and just hold a service. And so she said one night she had a dream of this man preaching. And when she went to that next service at the house, that man was there preaching, and he preached on the oneness of the Godhead. And so that's when she was converted. Uh, and so um, my dad knew about God. He knew about the church, but he just never did make any kind of commitment to that until he was 66 years old. Didn't your brother baptize him in Jesus' name? Yes. How did that happen? 
Well, he uh, he had a heart attack. My dad did, and uh, after he had that heart attack, they had to do surgery on him. It was open heart surgery, and they when he got home, none of us had to ask him to go to church, but he went to church. First time in my life, I saw him uh, cry. I had never seen him cry in my life, but he was repenting of his sins. And uh, my brother was able to baptize him in Jesus' name, and it was about two weeks later that he received the Holy Ghost at church. That was awesome. So who is somebody who impacted you through those teenage years? Was there anybody? Well, um, my youth pastor, uh, Jerry Downs, he probably doesn't even know this, but he made a great impact on my life. Um, Because he was always there for us, he had something going on all the time in that youth building that we had his doors were always open him and his wife Brenda and uh, we would take trips I remember going to Branson and uh, we would raise money uh, different ways and he always made a way that we could all have the money to go and really when I became a Sunday school teacher and working with children um, I can just remember as a kid that I could not wait until I could got got into the youth age to where I could go into the youth um, because I was so ready to leave the kids. And, and to be honest, you know, I know we had a, a great children's ministry program, you know, for what you could have back then. We didn't have revivals or anything, but we did have a lot of activities for kids and youth all together. But, you know, it was just like, I don't know, there was just something about being in that youth age. And so when I became uh, over children's ministry, I did not, I wanted my kids to love being in the kids' ministry. I wanted them to uh, not so much be looking for when I can get out of here, but I wanted them to enjoy while they were there. And so we would do the trips, we would raise money for them to go, and uh, Brother Jerry Downs is the one who really inspired me to do that. And so uh, remind us again, now how in all this did you meet your husband? His has his father had passed away, and we, I was asked to do to but, sing in the. But funeral. I mean, like in in that time frame. Now, remind me, was it just at, was it the funeral you first met, uh, and then he started coming to church? R- remind us again. Well, it was at the funeral. Okay. That we first met, and then after that, we went and invited him to come to church, and he started coming. When he prayed through to the Holy Ghost, how long was it until he got really actively involved in church? Almost immediately. Really? Yes. In what level? Um, Well, teaching Bible studies. I would say within six months, he was teaching Bible studies. And uh, we married. He got into the church in November. And then we married in uh, April of 1980. How long were you engaged? We were engaged about, um, probably about six months to a year. Was there any spiritual questions that he had that almost wondered if you should be dating him? That she almost wondered if she should yeah. have been him? Yeah. Was there anything that you were like, wow, you know, Pentecostal guys shouldn't be asking these kind of questions? Or were you excited because he was so um, curious about what we believed in? Oh, no, I was excited that he was. Because he, I remember having conversations with him and Meredith, and he would, you know, Meredith would talk about how he would follow the writings of Bob Dylan, and, you know, he's pretty far out in left field, and to come this far into right field is just a complete, you know, change, and to have such a an impact in so many people's lives, that has to, you know, this stems from something that's so crazy to, that some people would think, but 
out of all of that, you guys formed a ministry that is now being done all over the world. Talk to us a little bit about what Street Rage is. Um, Street Rage is, well, the acronym stands for Reaching a Generation Effectively. And um, we had become heavily involved in children's ministry, Sunday school, uh, bus ministry, and uh, God just opened the door for this. I think it was a God-ordained ministry that God had intended us to come in contact with. But we had... um, we're in the process of building a new church, and we had sold our old church before the new one was done. And so that summer, we were actually uh, having two buses and two vans. We were uh, had those going on in our Sunday school, picking up kids from out our community. And our pastor came and told us the predicament that we were in as far as not having a church building. And so he said, I'm not sure what it's going to do to your Sunday school but uh, for the summer, you know, we're not going to be able to run the buses because we don't have a place for them. We're just going to have to rent the Civic Center for one service on Sunday. And so <clears throat> we were driving through the park, and uh, David saw the gazebo out there and the chairs that were there, and he thought, you know what we can do? We can, we can bus those kids to the park. Now let me stop right there and ask, in your opinion, what the importance of bus ministry and someone catching the uh, burden to do that for a church? What is the importance of a bus ministry? Well, the bus ministry is reaching the lost. I mean, and that's what God's commission is. Uh, I don't think God expects us to wait for them to come to us. God wants us to go out to them, to reach them. And uh, we were over the children's ministry And so it just made sense to go out into neighborhoods trying to get other kids and their families to come. And so um, that was that was our reasoning for being involved in that. And it literally changed my life. Again, I was raised in the church. And so, you know, coming into contact with these kids that lived in these environments was totally you know, it was unreal for me. What do you mean these kind of environments? Well, we went into your high crime areas. That was where we went into your lower income neighborhoods. And to give context to this is to our listeners that aren't in, familiar with the state of Arkansas, you have to understand that the, the, the city of Blyville is considered to be all is in every top 10 list of the worst cities in, in Arkansas to live in. Uh, it's in, in the the Delta. The, the place is boarded up. If you drive down the streets of Blyville, uh, half of the homes are vacated, boarded up. The businesses it's, are the same. The, the the businesses aren't there. It's you know low uh, low income areas. I had to work a week in Blyville uh, with the post office and do an adjustment on some of the routes, and it just blew my mind how there was a house that we drove by that a tree was growing up through the middle of the house. And, and or at least I believe it was in Blyville that I saw this and I asked the carrier and the carrier said, no, people still live in that house. And so th- this is this is uh, low income kind of areas um, that, sh- that she's going stricken. to poverty stricken. Yes. And so anyway, this was not, you know, this is not something that I would had ever dealt with before. And uh, when I went and saw where these kids came from, um, it, my heart went out to them, and God literally gave me a burden for these these children and their families. So and, David saw that gazebo and saw a vision of those kids sitting there? Well, he didn't really see a vision, but he just thought, 
this is a place. We don't have a building, but we can bring them to the park. And, and you got to understand, this has been almost 30 years ago. And so uh, back in that day, that was just something that was kind of unheard of. You didn't, we didn't do that. As a matter of fact, we even had Sunday school teachers who said, you know, I'm not going to go to the park. You know, they're, they're, we're not going to be able to keep control of these kids. They're going to be watching the cars go by, the squirrels going up the tree. But we, we just said, you know, we're going to do this. If we have help and we don't, we're just still going to do this. And, and if the church families want to bring their children out here, they can. And so that's what we did, and it worked great. We had a great summer, and uh, we didn't lose our kids, our bus kids. They kept coming. And then in September, we, were, uh, we went to an—it uh, was a non-denominal uh, conference for children. And that's where we came in contact with uh, a thing they were doing called Sidewalk Sunday School. And they were going into the neighborhoods where kids lived, and they had like a trailer that led out down into a stage. And we thought, and David said, this is what we've been doing all summer, but we just don't have the truck or all of that. And so, uh, and God had, he had ordained our steps. He had ordered our steps all through our ministry, uh, working with the local church, but he had prepared the way. And because we didn't have any money, the church didn't have any money. They were putting it into the new church building. And so that was the first question our pastor asked. He said, well, how are y'all going to finance this program that y'all want to do? And we said, we're going to contact businesses, and they will give to it. Because we had had experience already in doing that with raising money for Shoes for Christ. And it worked. God blessed it. That first year, we got over $3,000 worth in cash, uh, not counting pizzas that were donated. Walmart gave bicycles. Uh, It was an amazing, amazing thing. How many kids do you think in Blyville that you guys baptized in Jesus' name and received the gift of the Holy Ghost? Just a ballpark figure. Oh, I really have no idea. A hundred? Oh, I would say more than that. Uh, Probably at least 150. Uh, But on the street, we probably, thousands probably is what we minister to. and matter of fact, I was just talking to Brother Aiton Sunday, and he works with the lady out at Trinity Rail, and she said something about being from Blyville, and he thought, well, I'm going to ask her if she knows anything about street rage. And he said he mentioned it, and her face just lit up in a smile, and she said, yes, we went to street rage. And I would venture to say that probably at that time, and even to this day, I would say at least 50 to 75% of the people in Blyville know what street rage is and was probably a part of it in some way, whether they came as a, chil- as a child or if they were a business owner who gave money. Um, somewhere, people in that city. And the newspaper, they, they publicize it. The newspaper owner's son was baptized in Jesus' name through our uh, street rage ministry. And so it's just a very well-known thing there. There was a um, young lady that had moved from Blyville to my high school whenever I was, at the time, I think I was a junior. And I remember the English teacher um, was was uh, at the front of the class. This young lady was sat at the front, and he asked her where she was from because uh, he noticed that she was dressed different than the other ladies that were there. And she said, I'm from Blyville. And he asked, do you know the Ramseys? And she said, oh, absolutely, I do. That young lady was Terica Meadows. Tell us about Terica, because Terica was one through the uh, street rage in Blyville 
and is a member of our church now at the Pentecostal Very active member. Well, I remember meeting Terica. She was probably about five years old, and uh, she had uh, two brothers at that time, and uh, just in a very, very poor neighborhood. It, it was called Chickasaw Courts. And matter of fact, the first year that we did Street Rage, uh, we did not go to Chickasaw Courts. It was the most common place that would have been great for it. But we had heard so many rumors of how uh, dangerous it was. It was very high crime. And so that first year, we did not go there. The second year, we felt like, like God was leading us to that neighborhood. And so I remember going into uh, this big open lot where all it was a housing project. And we prayed, and we just felt God's peace that we needed to go to that area. And so we began to go to Chickasaw Courts. And Terica was a part of that. Um, we would, I remember pulling in with that. Uh, we had like a trailer that we pulled with our church van. And when we would come, uh, it was a back, it was like a little road that was behind there. And it was a chain link fence kind of kept the, you know, from going into it. You had to go into the driveways. But as the kids would see us uh, driving down that road, they would begin to holler, street rage, street rage, street rage. And you would see them go running to that open lot where we set up. And, uh, and it was probably the thing that changed my life and, it, and forever. Um, and I think it changed our church the way they thought and my children growing up because Meredith was only four years old and Sarah was eight when we first started. But uh, Terica, her mother uh, uh, had a lot of medical issues and her father as well. And uh, just a very sad situation at times. And But Terica began to come. And not only Terica, we would always have probably about 115 to 120 kids there. And parents, many of the parents would come and they would sit in, uh, they'd bring a, a folding chair or a milk crate or something and just sit out there. And uh, God just did some beautiful things there. Um, there was a lot of, that very first year that we went to Chickasaw Courts, it was, we didn't get a lot of response as far as kids coming to church. It was almost like there were a lot of trust issues of like, why are you coming here? Uh, they didn't understand. Well, you were the minority. Yeah, we were the minority. It was mainly a black community. And uh, they couldn't understand why us white folks were going to there. And, but the kids would come to the street rage service, but when it was dismissed, they would leave. And so the next year when we went back, uh, you could be, tell that the, uh, those, those trust issues were not there as much. And they began to open up, and those walls began to go down. And we came very well uh, relationships with their families and uh, they opened up a, uh, an apartment there for us. They gave it to us free, and they would turn the heat and the uh, water on for us, and they didn't charge us anything. And we would use that for during the wintertime uh, when it was too cold to be outside. And the very first thing that we did is we started a street rage choir, and those kids would come, and we would practice church songs, and then we would travel. They would sing at our church. We would travel all over Arkansas. We went to Little Rock. Um, we went to West Helena, Jonesboro, and those kids, uh, some of them for the very first time, being involved in a, 
a service, a Pentecostal service, not just Sunday school. And I remember we went to West Memphis, and it was probably one of the highlights because I'll never forget the Spirit of the Lord began to move. And those children uh, went to the altar, and God just began to touch them and move upon them. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I remember, and I'm just going to, I don't know if you all have any more questions about Terica, but this isn't so much about Terica. I guess I've talked about Chickasaw Courts, but I remember after being gone for the winter time because we couldn't do it outside during the winter but we pulled into that um, that little open lot and it was the first service after being gone it was in april and i remember the kids were everywhere and um they were pulling on me sister kim sister kim they were all wanting your attention there was a hundred or more there and i remember after leaving that place we went back to the church to unload and and to clean up and I went into that church office and I felt so overwhelmed it was a great service and we had great response but at the same time I felt like God how can I reach so many kids so many people and God just kind of gave this to me and I, I just the words began to flow and I just began to write these words down and I have kept them throughout the years and I'm going to just read this it says Chickasaw Courts and Blyville you are special to me I can't explain the way I feel. I guess it's God's love that he has put in my heart for you. I leave Chickasaw Courts feeling good, but somehow helpless. So many needs, so many hearts to love, so many. How can I meet the needs of so many? They are not a crowd to me. They are individuals who need somebody to say, I missed you last week. Somebody to say, you are very special to me. Lord, I give what I have, just me. And somehow, with your help and with your blessing, you can take me, my smile, my song, my hands, my hugs, and you and me together can make the difference in the lives of so many. And God reminded me that day of the boy with the fish and the loaves of bread, and he said, you just give me what you have, and I will take it, and I will multiply it, and I will feed the many. And God has done that. God has blessed this ministry. He has blessed. He's given us favor in the city. Um, and God opened up so many doors from from that street rage ministry. I know I'm jumping way ahead in your story, but I am curious about one thing you talked about is how when you went to Chickasaw Courts, there was the trust issues because you were of a, of a different race and, and why you were there. One thing that, that blew my mind, Sister Kim, the first time I went with you um, at a street rage here in Jonesboro, after you left Blyville, you guys came here to Jonesboro, and you guys started a street rage in Cedar Heights. And Cedar Heights is is the, the lower income part of Jonesboro. Uh, they've got signs in parts of Cedar Heights that uh, declared as a public nuisance. But the thing is, is that Sister Kim can walk up to a door and knock on it, and when they open the door up, she's invited into the house there, that relationship of trust has been established how do you how did you and, and the thing is that blew my mind is one of the houses that i recall specifically is a hispanic lady that that hardly spoke english but knew who you were how did you establish relationships with these people was it just because you were there and they saw that you loved their kids and they accepted you because they love their children is it something you did with the parents how did you bridge the gap from the lack of trust to being welcomed into the homes with open arms? Well, I think the first thing was we were there in their neighborhood. Um, we were crossing the boundary. 
and we all have uh, a saying that we want people to come and visit us, but we don't want to go visit them. And so I think us being there in their neighborhood on their turf uh, and then interacting with their children and not just their kids. I mean, we would go to the door. We would talk to them. Uh, many times we weren't invited in at first, and the parents would just come out and just kind of chit-chat. Or the, a lot of times the parents came to Street Rage, and they literally, I believe, felt the love of God. Uh, if God has taught me anything, he has taught me that it's his love that makes a difference. Um, I remember in our early years of ministry, doing bus ministry, there was a little boy that was in my Sunday school class, and he was a rough kid. His name was Brian. I'll never forget him. He liked to fight. Sometimes he would pick fights. Uh, he was a very loud, uh, obnoxious kid, and uh, just always getting on your nerves, causing distraction. And I remember praying, God, change that kid, change that kid. And God just spoke to me softly and said, you're the one that needs to change. And God began to do a work in me. Again, I was not raised. I was raised in a very uh, good at home environment. Even though my dad was not in the church, I never heard my dad cuss in my entire life. He didn't drink. Uh, it was a very good environment. And to go into those homes, uh, it was something else. And so God had to do a work in me. And I began to pray, God, help me to see these kids as you see them. Help me to understand why the behavior is going on in their life. And God began to show me things. And and so even when I was dealing with these these people and these kids and their families, um, I didn't see uh, the abrasiveness that they, they lived in, the outward appearance. Uh, many times I would see the hurting heart, and I would, um, I would see the pain. And, and, I, and I used to think that these parents didn't care about their kids, but these parents love their kids as much as they know how to love them how their parents loved them. And, and, of course, you always have your exceptions, but on the average, they do love their kids. And so God began to show me things. I remember uh, one of the little girls that we had been ministering to there uh, found out that she had been raped. And I remember going to that mother, because this little girl had come to me at Sunday school, and I, we went to her pastor's wife. How old? She was 11 years old, and uh, I remember going to the pastor's wife because I had never dealt with this. I didn't know what to do. I just basically hugged her, and I prayed with her, and I asked her if her mother knew, and she said yes. And so I just um, sent her home on the bus, and then I went straight to the pastor's wife and said, what do we need to do? And so there was a nurse in our church as well. And so we went that afternoon and went and met with this girl's mom. And her mother knew, and they were afraid to go to the police. They were afraid to do anything, afraid of retaliation from this person who had raped her daughter. They were afraid he was going to come and shoot the house up. And so anyway, we went to the police department. And, uh, well, first we went to the hospital, and they did, you know, for uh, to make sure that she had been raped and she had been 
and it was a rape crisis center. And then we went to the police department, and she made her report. And I remember I had to go in. She asked me to go in with her. And, uh, you know, she told what happened. But anyway, through all of that, that mother began to confide in me of things that had happened to her when she was a child. And uh, I remember her telling that she was in a big apartment complex. I think it was in, it was some, it was a big city. And she literally was on the sidewalk below and her brother jumped to his death. And uh, her mother was holding on to him, trying to keep him from jumping. And she told about how she had been raped herself. And so it gave me some insight. You know, we think these kids are acting out and their bad behavior, but when you think about what they have been through, and we sit here so uh, piously and we, we judge, and, and I'm just, all I'm trying to say is this, is that we have got to show the love of God. And where it is humanly impossible to love some of these kids because of their behavior or the way they may smell or um, how they look. Humanly, it is impossible to love some of them, but the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And God loved us while we were yet sinners, and God wants us to love these people where they're at right now. We all have the saying of God, God, you know, is going to make something greater than they've got such great potential, but God loves them where they are right now, and God wants us to love them where they are right now, too. Did the enemy ever attack you and David once you guys stepped out in faith doing what God wanted you to do? Yes, he did. Uh, That very first year, we kicked Street Rage off in April of 1993. And uh, that summer, he attacked us heavily. I remember it was like May and June, we had water leaks in our house. And they had to come and jackhammer the house, uh, the foundation, trying to find the leak. And I remember we had... Uh, dirt piled up in our hallways but we you know we were just so we were so sold out to what God wanted us to do we would just come home from work change clothes and we would go and do street rage and just dirt piled up in the house they got they found that leak and they got it fixed and within three weeks there was another leak and they had to go and jackhammer another part of the foundation and we had so we were with dirt (laughs) piled up in our house Uh, for probably a good month before it was all fixed. And then in July, uh, we were getting ready to go on a a trip, and uh, we had never been on a vacation, like I would say like this one. We were going to actually go to Florida. And like a few days before we were going to go, Sarah, our oldest daughter, was on uh, a moped with her friend, and they they were on the gravel road, and they skidded, and she burnt her leg really bad. And um, so she was really like bandaged up, couldn't get in the ocean, couldn't get it wet. And um, so that happened to her in July. And then in August, <laughs> Meredith, she was, um, she was five, or I guess she was four years old at that time. And she was at my uh, cousin's house jumping on a trampoline. My mom and dad were watching her. And uh, some older kids got on the trampoline and it basically bounced her off and broke her elbow. And we were actually at a street rage location fixing to start when I got the call that Meredith 
it looked like she had broken her arm. Which she gets for not being a street rage. And so we had to uh, <laughs> leave there and went to the doctor, and they literally uh, took her to uh, Le Bonner's in Memphis, and she was there, had to have surgery on her elbow. So those were sure things that happened, like boom, 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 boom. And uh, But we we were just... We just kept doing what God wanted us to do. So let's talk about Meredith and Sarah a little bit. Um, talk about some of the concerns that you've had with your own children um, and how you reacted whenever uh, they were going through stuff and you'd reach out to your pastor's wife for advice. Tell us a little bit about that story. Well, both of my kids were very, very shy. Uh, as far No. As- <laughs> <laughs> no. As far as getting up and doing stuff, I mean, they just did not do that. <laughs> no. Uh, Sarah was a little bit more outgoing than Mary. No. <laughs> oh, man. Um, You're kidding me. But uh, anyway, Sarah, she, you know, really in our church, there were a lot of kids her age. She had a lot of friends her age. Some of them actually went to school with her. Um so I really never worried too much about Sarah because she was more social, more outgoing. Uh, Meredith, on the other hand, there wasn't a lot of people her age at the church. Uh, she had a little friend, Shannon, and, and Jonathan were her friends at church that were her age, but neither one of them went to her school. And Meredith, uh, she would not hardly open her mouth. I mean, no. no. <laughs> She does uh, now. <laughs> very, very, very shy. And I remember um, there would be times at night that she would be crying and she would be afraid. And uh, the devil, you know, would be talking to her in her mind and making her feel so inadequate. And that's what she would tell me. The devil's telling telling me this, you know, or I feel like I can't be this. And she was so uh, inferior and felt like she was nobody and that uh, she did not like school. She didn't have any friends. And, uh, you know, they bullied her, you know, because she never would say anything. And matter of fact, her third grade teacher to this day, I believe, she thought we were doing something to her because she would just tell us she don't open her mouth, you know, and we would just try to tell her she's just very, very shy. But that was with people she didn't know. And so from those times in her elementary years, I was really concerned about Meredith as far as um, school was concerned um, because it was an every night thing. She would be waking us up. I'd have to go in there and we'd talk. We'd pray together. And, uh, and I remember talking to my pastor's wife about this, and she began to tell me that the best thing that I can do is is to communicate. Let her tell you. Let her open up, you know, and you stay there and you talk to her and you pray with her. She said because uh, Meredith is very, very sensitive to uh, the spirit world, where she would be sensitive to God and listening for God. She said there are other spirits. And she said that, you know, and Meredith needs to understand the difference between, a, you know, a God spirit and, and the demonic spirits. And I remember we would pray against those spirits. And, I mean, she was, she was probably 8, 9, and 10 years old when she was, this was all going on. And uh, I remember there was a time that our pastor's wife was very, very sick and uh, 
had had almost died on more than one occasion. And it, we were having a meeting one night at church, and uh, Sister Spears was not even able to be at the church, but she came up later for that meeting. And Meredith just kind of walked into that meeting and just began to tell Sister Spears some things uh, in a, just a very kitty way. And, uh, and How Meredith, old was she? She was probably about 10 years old at that time. And, uh, but, you know, Meredith was even telling me what she told her. But, you know, I was just thinking she was just doing that, you know. But the next morning, uh, Brother T.W. Barnes called Sister Spears and pretty well told her the same stuff that Meredith had told her the night before. And so that let me know that Meredith did have, you know, she had a gift of, listening to the Spirit, and she acted on what she heard. Again, to give context to what was, what was just said, to those that aren't familiar with the name of T.W. Barnes, T.W. Barnes, whenever he was alive, was considered to be probably one of the, the greatest prophets in the modern apostolic church. That he, he, uh, Everybody looked up to him as someone that was very sensitive to the Spirit world, could, mm-hmm. could hear from God and give direction, uh, was given many visions from God. And so this is not uh, you know, just some guy that we're talking about. We're talking about one of the, the most powerful spiritual men that has been within the last uh, 50 years of the Apostolic Church. And, you know, Meredith is still like that. There's been numerous occasions that I have walked into our house after either I uh, coming in late from doing something or coming home from work, and Meredith is shut up in a guest bedroom on her face uh, interceding for people. And, you know, it it just shows that uh, the importance of staying connected to God and because when you do open yourself up to uh, being an intercessor and interceding for other people, you de- do hear those other voices, and um, you know you just have to kind of push through that. But Kim, I want to ask you, with Meredith struggling with all these things, where you had to go talk to the pastor's wife, did it kind of bother you that you could minister to all these different kids, but you couldn't minister to your own? Not not saying that you didn't, but you couldn't connect with her sometimes. Uh, I wouldn't say that really ever bothered me, as far as that thought. But it did bother me of knowing, am I doing the right thing? How do I deal with this? And, um, and even in ministry, um, you know, you would go to some places and the children's evangelists, their kids were up front doing the puppets, their kids were up front leading the songs. And our kids just didn't want to do that because no, they didn't. They still don't want to. Yeah, do that. they don't. Well, they they're a lot better now than what they used to be. I said they don't want to, not that they don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, uh, and so I didn't know how far do I push? How do I put? Do I push them? Do I make them? But I never felt right making them do that. Uh, so I would just kind of coax them at times and encourage them to do that, and then other times I would just you know let let it go because I did not want to ever make them feel like this was something they were forced to do, something they had to do. And I really do believe now that they love ministry and they both had their own giftings. Uh, Sarah sings. Sarah uh, can get up front and talk to people. I think Sarah has a, uh, a very loving nature uh, and makes people feel welcome, uh, where Meredith is more... Um, 
introverted, but at the same time, <laughs> she is no. she is caring, uh, and she carries the weight internally. Yeah, right. Where she Sarah does. is external, Meredith is internal. Right. And you talked about the intercessory prayer. I believe that is something that is passed from generation to generation. My mother is an intercessor, and I can remember my mom telling about. Uh, times that she would wake up in the middle of the night with somebody on her mind and she wouldn't know why she was even you know what what's going on she wouldn't have a clue mm-hmm. but she would just feel impressed to pray for them and uh and i i've had mine's different i think but i do i feel like i'm an intercessor as well and then i think meredith has that same mm-hmm. brian some Ooh. of the best conversations we've had was midnight on a sunday night after church let out where me, you, and Meredith sat in a car and we just talked. And, you know, we got on some levels that were pretty deep. And, you know, I really, truly do believe that Meredith is like that. No, she's she's a very deep thinker, yeah. very deep thinker. Uh, if, if you're in a group message with her and you haven't heard from her for a little while, it's because she's writing you a novel that she's about to send. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. but, uh, turn on your speak to text. Yeah. And, and, and Tony and our, Tony and Ma- Melissa, my wife, will be in the group message. They won't say anything. And I'll just text back LOL or, or yeah. yes. At least, at least I give her the, yeah. the, a response. Yeah. Were you very protective of your children? Um, I probably was not. Uh, that was something that I was careful. I didn't want to be overprotective. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something else I worried about as a parent. You yeah. know, how far do I go? Right. But if they had issues at school, I wasn't one of them parents that would go up there and, you know, talk to the teacher about it. I would just try to talk to them. Now, if it became, I do remember on one occasion going and talking to the teacher uh, with Meredith because. Uh, of a girl that was in front of her that was always taking her snacks. And Meredith would never tell, would never open her mouth, would never say anything. And so I do remember going and talking to that teacher. But overall, I would just, I'm just not a confronter on that kind of thing. I just felt like sometimes that makes it worse. And so um, I was not overprotective. I just tried to, we would talk to our kids about responses, how, how they needed to respond. And if this don't work, then we're going to go do something different, you know. When Meredith first started dating Tony, were you skeptical of Tony? No. <laughs> Stop shaking your head yes. Man, I was hoping she'd say yes because I was going to go, well, no. <laughs> that was that whole thing was a setup just to bring to that point and she dropped it. But, but hey, uh, real quick before, before we continue moving on. I don't want our listeners to get frustrated and be like, they never did end up telling the story about Terica. Can we go back and, and, and finish talking about how, how she came to the church and how you established that relationship with her there at Chickasaw Courts? Okay, I've, we go back to Terica. Um, Terica came to Street Rage. She was always at Street Rage. She was a very quiet child, um, never would say a whole lot. Uh, and so you never really knew what was going on in Terica's mind. Um, we did the Street Rage Choir, and Terica was a part of that, and she would travel with us, but she was kind of always on the outside. She never did. Uh, she wasn't like on that in that in group. Uh, she was just always kind of like on the fringe, but she was always there. And I remember we started a tutoring program there at Chickasaw Courts um, in that apartment, and we did that from, from September through May for school, and I remember tutoring 
Terica. She was the kid that I tutored. And working with her with her uh, homework and stuff like that, uh, Terica kept coming to church. Uh, she received the Holy Ghost and was baptized in the name of Jesus. And I remember um, one Sunday morning, I was taking her home from church, and she just broke down and started crying. And she began to tell about abuse that was going on uh, from the environment that she lived in. And, uh, and so there again, I went and talked to our pastor's wife on what we needed to do. And it was at that time that Tupelo Children's Mansion had just started the Haven of Hope. And, uh, and so I asked Tarek, I said, Tarek, she was about 12 at this time. I said, would you be willing to go there for help? And she said that she would. And so then we had to get permission from her mom and dad. And there again, I had built a relationship with both of them. It wasn't just uh, these kids that come to church and never seen them again until the next Sunday because we established a relationship on a weekly basis in their environment, in their neighborhood, visiting in the home. Matter of fact, I taught her mom and dad a Bible study. And, uh, but anyway, her mom did get permission. And I remember taking Terica down to Tupelo, and when we had to leave her, Terica was crying, her mom was crying, I was crying, and uh, but I knew that this was the very best thing that could ever have happened to Terica. And so once a quarter, I would uh, take her mom down to visit her and her brothers. And uh, Terica, I, I believe now, she hated every minute of being there. She did not like it, but she will tell you that that was her saving grace. Absolutely. And so she was there for about a year and a half, and then she wanted to come home. And I did not want her to come home. And the reason why is because I did not want her to go back to that same environment that she was living in. But And plus, she could have went to college. I think they would have paid for that, at least her first year of college. I think they paid for their first car. Uh, she could have got all that if she would have stayed there but she wanted to come home. And so when she got home, things had escalated. Things had gotten a lot worse in her home environment. And uh, there was a couple in our church, Mike and Laura Cato, that had also been involved in Terica's life in the Sunday school department. And they said, we will take legal guardianship of Terica. And they were living in Jonesboro at that time. You know, and here again, we had to get permission from the mom and dad. That time, it wasn't so much a problem with Terica's mom as much as her dad, and but I, I did was I was able to talk them into doing that, mm. and Terica has maintained a relationship, and that was my thing that I kept telling them: you let her go, you let her go, and she will never forget you, and she will take care of you, and uh, and Terica has done that. But since then, her mother has passed away, and her brother was murdered, and. Uh, but uh, she still has a relationship with her father there and her brother and her brothers in Bible. And then she has a great relationship with Mike and Laura as well and has a lot of siblings now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she does. They, they've got a, they had the, they staffed out a trunk or treat this year <laughs> yeah, they as did. being the, um, the uh, whole cast of Scooby-Doo. Scooby -Doo. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me uh, about another, uh, there's, there's two more young ladies that you've ministered to 
that I want to get their story, if you can tell bits and pieces. One, I, I don't know their name, but tell me the story of the young lady that found out that she was pregnant and was going to go have the abortion. Okay, that was the same girl that was raped. And it was a few years later that um, she kind of ran away for a few days. And in that time frame, she became pregnant. And I think she was probably about 13 at that time. And um, I remember going, I had a great relationship with that mother and I, because they said they were going to do an abortion. The father was... Uh, this girl's father was going to pay for the abortion. And uh, I, I remember going to that home begging, you know, please don't do this. You know, our Tupelo Children's Mansion here again, they have new beginnings. We can take that baby and they will adopt that baby out. And I begged them and they said, no, no, we're not doing this. She was very, the mother was very upset with her daughter. She was, so she was very upset with the whole world at that time. But at that time, we had uh, that apartment that they had given us in Chickasaw Courts. And I remember praying. Uh, we had a prayer meeting. We prayed there once a month on a Saturday morning. And so on that Saturday morning, for the group of people that had came to pray, I asked them, I said, let's pray for this girl. And I said, they are going to have an abortion. And, uh, and so we prayed that God would intervene and that would not happen. And so um, that afternoon, I got a call from that girl. And uh, she was telling me that, that she had gone to Memphis to get the abortion that day. And, I, and she said, but I just, that nurse kept telling her, you know, don't move, don't move, you gotta be still, you gotta be still. And she said, but I kept moving, I kept moving. And, she, and I said, what time was that? And it was at 12 o'clock noon when we were at that apartment praying that God would intervene. And uh, that young lady, the, the baby that was born, uh, they ended up keeping that baby and raising that baby. And she uh, went off to college this year. Wow. So, Brian, we didn't discuss the three names you were going to talk about. But when you said that there was two more, I didn't know the one you were just bringing up. But I looked at you, and I automatically knew who it was. Kim, tell us about Rosa. Rosa was a girl that we met here in Jonesboro, and uh, very, very special from the moment we met her. She was different. And uh, she was probably about seven when we first met her. And uh, she came to church with us and got a relationship with her mother, Dolores. And her mother couldn't speak English, but um, there was just a bond there. We I remember uh, Rosa. We I had a, a sleepover at my house in Blyville because we were living in Blyville at that time, and with several of the girls from our street rage, and she was one of those girls that stayed. Uh, I remember starting a Bible study with her and another young lady, and I would bring them to my house uh, and just kind of more in depth study than just Sunday school. Just building the relationship. That was the main thing, building the relationship. And then sometimes we'd go to Pizza Inn, and we'd just get in the back booth, and we would have a short little Bible study and talk, and they would have questions. And uh, But anyway, and, and David was able to baptize Rosa. I think she was about 11 years old. And he actually had cancer at that time because the picture I have of her being baptized, uh, he had lost his hair. 
and uh, so he was sick at that time. And uh, Rosa was just a beautiful person, and uh, when she got into the youth class, she became more active. She got a friend, a, a friend that their family went to church here, and she became very, very close to her. And I believe that uh, Jess and Rochelle Gay and their daughter, Savannah, had a great impact on Rosa's life. And that was part of the maturing and discipling. And that's the thing about these kids. You know, uh, God uses all of us. He uses every one of our, you know, impartation into these kids' lives. So it's not just what I can give, but it's what somebody else can give too. And so that is something that Rosa desired very much is to have a close friend. And because she would talk about that. She would talk about that during some of our talks that she just didn't feel like she had any close friends. And I believe God gave her that in Savannah. And she, she would go to camps with Savannah. She would stay at Savannah's house. And uh, Savannah even would go to Rosa's house. And so that, that, uh, that bond began to build uh, Rosa received the Holy Ghost, I believe she was around 13 or 14 years old at the campground in Arkansas, and uh, she got Camper of the Year for the District of Arkansas, uh, and I think that's a very, uh, a great honor, um, but something that was very, very special that Rosa did, and mm-hmm. you got to understand this was one of our street rage kids, one of our bus kids, so they didn't have a lot, but this was when David was very, very sick. And we were just, uh, matter of fact, it was, it was in May of 2012. She asked me to come by her house that they had some, she had something she wanted to give me. And so we were still living in Blytheville at that time. And so I said, well, we'll be over there on Thursday, so we'll come by. Well, David was so sick that he didn't even get out of the car. And so I went up to the house, and when Rosa saw me, she asked me to come in, and she ran to her bedroom, and she came out with this white envelope. And... Uh, I thought, well, what is this, you know? And so I opened it up, and it had five $20 bills in it. It was $100. And I said, Rosa, I cannot take this. And she said, you take that. She won it in a math contest at school. And she said, you take it. You have given to us, and I want to give back to you. And her mom was like on that couch just shaking her head yes. You know, she really couldn't say a whole lot because she couldn't speak English, but she was giving her approval of that. And uh, i never forget her mom going out to the car and Rosa going out to the car, and she got David's hand, and she prayed over David. And it was just a beautiful thing. And, um, and I just recently was telling about some of this stuff at a seminar that I was doing in uh, Alabama, And it's just amazing to me that when you give, you know, that scripture, give, and it shall be given to you. Um, You know, we're thinking monetary stuff. But when we have given, and we have, we've given so much to these kids. And I'm I'm not talking about monetary stuff. I'm talking about we've given life. We've poured into them. Uh, But God has blessed us that we have seen them grow up and they are giving back and they're giving back to the kingdom. They've given back to us in their love and in just uh, whatever, you know, even that little gesture that she did was just a beautiful thing that I will never, ever forget. And it was something that was, will be treasured by me. And where is Rosa today? 
Rosa is 20 years old, and she's in her second year at Urshan College. Very, very proud of That's her. That's Urshan Bible College, for those who don't know. she's She was one to the Lord, and now she's giving her life back to the Lord. At the time you listen to this podcast, the, the gentleman that you've heard before this podcast, and I believe you may even hear a few after, these are her instructors. The, when we talk about Brother David Norris is one of her teachers, one through bus ministry, one by a man and a woman that had a passion for young people, that had a burden for young people. Kim, did you minister to these young people just out of a sense of duty, or was it because you just had a love for those people? that you just couldn't see yourself doing anything different? I just couldn't see myself doing anything different. It was it was our life, and, and God gave us that burden. And, um, you know, when we walked at that conference, when we stepped up to that thing that they called Sidewalk Sunday School, I believe God ordered our steps there. I think God, it was a, uh, a divine moment that God had placed in our life because it changed the course of our life. And, uh, and I would not trade anything that we have accomplished through this. There's, you know, it's not the easiest ministry. Uh, it's very, it can be very time consuming. If you're gonna do it correctly and do it right, uh, to where you really do reach them and win them and mature them and disciple them. Because when you're dealing with kids, you know, we it's not instant results. I mean, it is it is time. It is It takes years, you know, to really see the fruition of your effort. And, um, and so you don't quit pouring into them. I mean, even now, Terika, when she introduces me to people, she will say, this is my mentor. And, and we still meet not as often as we probably once did but we do go out to eat occasionally and we'll talk and she'll text and we'll I'll text back and uh, and and the same with Rosa you know uh, it's just uh, it's just something you never quit doing and then there's kids that aren't coming now and even tonight at prayer I call their name in prayer because I believe that God can bring them back uh, they never forget. Uh, this has been a few months ago. I was in Blyville working, and I went to the post office, and there was a man that walked by. He was a young man, probably about your age. And uh, when he walked by, you know, because when I'm in Blyville, I'm always very conscious of everybody I see because I know that I may know them to some extent, or they may know me because it was such a heavily uh, ministered place with street rage. And so when I walked by, uh, that guy turned around, and he just pointed his finger at me. He said, I remember you, street rage. And he, and he walked off. He says, I will never forget it. And so it's just, you know, and so you just got to believe that somewhere along the way, the seeds that plant were planted you have to trust that God, you know, is, is that he still deals with them. He's the one that gives the increase. We're not the Savior. He is the Savior. 
but he does ask us to to plant the seed of the word of God and to water it with our tears and to uh, believe it's a promise. You know, he that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And that is a scripture that I have held on to. That's a promise that God has given me. And so there's been lots of times where you feel like, am I really making a difference? Is it going to accomplish? Is it going to affect? But God has always given me that scripture. And like, again, he, he reminded me of that boy with the fish and the loaves. You give what you, you have. That's all I ask of you to do. And then I will do the rest. And he has, he has been there. He has been there. Through that street rage ministry, we were able to do a Hispanic Bible study. Uh, we got probably about 11 adults that were coming. Um, through that, we were able to win a family of the kids that we had been picking up for years, and they now attend the church in Walnut Ridge, UPC. Um, it's just been a beautiful thing. I was at the second window at McDonald's, and I noticed the man who gave me my Dr. Pepper looked at me for a prolonged period of time before he turned to pick up the the bag that had my burger and fries in it. And when he turned back with the bag and he handed it to me, he said, Hey, you go to Sister Kim's church, don't you? It wasn't you go to the Pentecostals of Jonesboro. It wasn't some minister that's on the staff. It wasn't even our pastor's name. But it was you who built a connection with them that they'll never forget. How many, how many young people, uh, and not just in Blyville and Jonesboro, but in your travels where you've even gone around the world, Australia and these places, how many children do you think that you've per- personally ministered to? Oh, man, I have no idea. But <laughs> <laughs> how many hugs have you given? A lot of hugs. How many letters have you sent? A lot of letters. Tell me, tell me about the letters. I would always, when in my Sunday school class, I would uh, always send notes to them if they were a first-time visitor or if they had been sick or just randomly. I would just send them a note, let them know that I love them, that God's got great things planned for them. I would do that on a all the time. And I believe letters are very important. Notes are very important. You know, these kids need, and not just kids, everybody needs to know that somebody's thinking of them and that they are valuable in the kingdom and that God's got something for them. They need to be reminded that. They need that hope. I want to I wanna ask you something. I want you to be as honest with us as possible, that many times um, Sunday school comes under a lot of criticism because it's hard to get teachers. And people will look at Sunday school teachers and they'll say, oh, well, they don't need to be teaching Sunday school because of whatever it is, uh, that, that somebody judges that they're below a, a, a level of, of a spiritual walk, that they, they have no place ministering to kids. Or they'll, uh, you know, they put undue criticism sometimes on Sunday school teachers. Can you encourage our Sunday school teachers and, and speak to what what is your opinion of folks that are saying, oh, well, they don't need to be teaching Sunday school, but that person isn't signing up to teach Sunday school? I've always said you don't have to be 
to become a great teacher, it's not maybe being a, you know, being the best teacher out there or the word even. I think the greatest thing that you can do is to love them. Um, because you can be the best teacher. You can know that Bible front and back. But if you are not one that loves that child, they're not going to hear what you have to say a lot of times. And But when you love them, you could tell them anything and they'd believe you. And so to me, the most important thing that you can do is to love them. Uh, be their friend, be their mentor, be their... Uh, and those, these are all steps. It's not going to happen overnight, but uh, be a spiritual guide in their life. Um, be that person that they can open up to um, and share their hurts and their experiences with, and they're not going to do that with someone they don't know or someone that has not proven to them that they are trustworthy and that they care about them. Um, that's the greatest thing, mm-hmm. the greatest thing. And since you, I do have this, this was just some things I brought. I didn't know if I would use these or not, but it goes along with that. And so I'm going to read this. It was, I was asleep. This was in our many early years. This is before Street Rage. But uh, in the early morning, God woke me up. And this doesn't happen very often, but words were just going through my mind. And I got up, and I wrote them down. And uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, according to a bus kid. And it says, Though you may speak with great words and make great promises and show not love, the words are meaningless to me. And though you come and visit me each week and inquire about me and you have not love, it shows you only do it out of duty to those over you. And though you teach me of Jesus each week and say that he loves me, and yet you show not love, I do not understand. I do not see his love in you. Love is patient with me even when I misbehave, for I only do this for your attention. I only do this for your love. Love is kind. It speaks of the good things in life. It brings my thoughts away from the bad things at home. Love rejoices in me in my good experiences and understands my failures. Love bears all things, even the smell of my dirty clothes that mom forgot to wash. Love believes in me. Love sees me not as I am today, but what I can be in the future. Love hopes with me for a better life. Love endures all things. Love endures the pain I feel when my parents come home drunk. Love endures the loneliness I feel, the embarrassment, the harassment. Love endures it all. Love will never fail me. Love will always be there for me. I can depend on love. And now there abides three things, faith in what I can be, hope that these things will be, and love that loves for what I am, me. And the greatest of these is love. And that's the, to me, that's the core of, of winning souls, whether they be adults, children, teenagers, it doesn't matter. It's loving them. What has been your hardest time in ministry? The hardest time in ministry is probably when David got sick. We got the news that uh, David had cancer and, and 
it was kind of a surprise to us because he had had bronchitis, or that's what we thought it was, and David never went to the doctor. And I remember him waking me up that morning, and he said, you know, I want to go to the doctor. I just don't feel good. And so when he went, uh, the doctor did some blood work, found out he was losing blood, and uh, sent him over to Jonesboro to the hospital for more tests. And they did a colonoscopy, and that's when they found out that he had a tumor, and uh, which they later found was colon cancer. And uh, we really had a lot of faith and a lot of belief. And the weird thing is, was the day that we found out he had cancer, we were leaving town to go evangelize at, at a church for a kids' revival in Texas. And I remember when we got to that hotel that night, uh, we got several texts from different church people that was such an encouragement to us. And um, he had to go through chemotherapy. Uh, they did surgery. And uh, they thought they got it all. And we were traveling. I, I really don't even remember. I think that was March uh, that we found out. I don't even remember the year. because. But he did have it for three years, so I guess that would be 2009. And we were. I remember going in July to uh, a camp in Louisiana. And he had was doing great. But uh, he had to go back for some blood work because they always check your levels, and it, it was elevated. And so, therefore, they thought the cancer had come back. And I remember, uh, just like it was yesterday, sitting in a recliner in my, my living room. David did not have insurance. And it really was not an issue as far as having to have money up front except for the chemo pump he had to wear. And we had to have money up front to pay for that every time. And it was like four or five hundred dollars, you know, a month. And we had to pay in one time. And I remember sitting in that recliner, bawling. I was crying and I was saying, David, how are we gonna do this? And he said, God will take make a way. God's gonna take care of it. We gotta trust in God. And I'll never forget we were going to the doctor's office. And we had to have uh, so much money to put down, and we didn't have it. We did not have it. And we, we were having to go. I mean, we were walking in the doctor's office, and you know how the doors will slide open. We were actually going into the door, and we didn't have the money, and we just didn't know how it was going to happen. And this woman, and I didn't even know her, but she knew us. But now I know who she was. It was Dustin Thomas's grandmother. But she came to us, and at the same time, her daughter was sick with cancer. And she said, the Ramses. She said, God laid you on my heart when I heard that you had cancer. And I set aside this money to give to you. And she gave us $100. And it was enough to cover what we had. And, and like I said, I didn't even know her. But she knew who we were. And when we got in the elevator, me and David just looked at each other like, wow. You know, and God was just teaching us, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And you know what? He has done that. He has done that every step of the way in every situation. The times that David was sick, uh, when we didn't know what was happening, what the future held, he was there, and David never stopped. David would go to do street rage. He would still travel. Um, I remember we were at a 
uh, a kids revival in Tennessee, and this was probably the last one that we did. But he was in bad shape, and he never did let on as bad off. I think that he was, but I remember he was up teaching, and uh, he just kind of walked off, and and so I got up and finished up, kind of took over from where he was headed. And afterwards, he told me I had to get to the bathroom. I had to, and uh, and he was just in bad shape, and and even the last kids revival that we did here at our church, um, mm-hmm. that he was alive, that and he was in really bad shape. But you can find those pictures on Facebook or Facebook of him praying kids through to the Holy Ghost in the altar, and um, Kim, I can take you to the exact place where. I was sitting at a restaurant here in Jonesboro where David um, told me and Meredith and Craig and Sarah that he had the cancer had returned and he has decided uh, not to go through with um, trying to fight against it, that he was he was done with fighting. And I remember Meredith um, really questioning David because Meredith was really close to her dad and um uh, she uh, was in very bad <laughs> place in her life when all that was going on and a really dark hour. But you were talking about that that kids revival that David that last one he was at. Um, Brian, I think we were destined to be friends because there's a picture of you and David uh, where you're praying for him or with him. But he refused to let you do that. Instead, he prayed for you. What does that mean to you, Brian? I didn't know him for very long, but he he did have a special place in my heart because he was the first minister that saw that I could do something in the kingdom of God. That he approached me to want to teach Sunday. He wanted me to teach Sunday school, and and I didn't want to. And and I only did it for a short period of time because I just, it, I just didn't, I didn't understand the the weight at the time of what Sunday school meant. But I'll never forget that he was the first one that ever came and said. I mean, I remember, and I would be standing in the altar, and and I sat beside him quite a bit at church on the front row. And he would just lean over to me, and he would tell me this statistic of how many children in America get molested every day, where he was calling for somebody to to pick up the mantle of ministry of of continuing on after him in in, in the years to come, somebody to to still love those kids and to to love the the, the children that that he had loved, and he did that not just with me; he did that with so many. So many. Um, you can go through all all these you know, younger, you know, the that younger generation, even than me, just a step below the, the way they they see David. Because in that same picture you're talking about is another young man. That's while well, I'm praying on one shoulder, there's another young man praying on the other shoulder, and I think that's the way that this whole generation saw David. Even though, again, with me, I, I was never in one of his Sunday school classes, but I just I loved his spirit, and I would I remember going to the hospital with him, and and Kim sitting there, being there as well, and I I talked their ear off, and because I wanted to learn where did it all come from, where where did you get your start, where did you get your calling, where did you get your passion, 
And, and those were conversations I'll always cherish. So David passed, and um, in his passing, Brian, you talked about that you wanted to talk a little bit about what happened at his funeral. He had a unique funeral, to say the least. I think it's yeah. the only funeral you'll ever go to. They had balloons. Yeah, don't talk about that. I don't like balloons, but it's the only thing that uh, only funeral you'll ever go to. And one of where the preachers got, had a clown nose. Yeah, you got you got clowns welcoming you into the parking lot. Um, it was such well, a well on the sign uh, welcoming people. On the campus was a picture of David on the sign in clown makeup. <laughs> it says David Ramsey's homegoing service. Yeah, uh, everybody was handed out uh, stickers, smiley face stickers. What was the most unique thing you think about that funeral? Run? But the most unique thing about it was it's the first time I've ever been to a funeral that they had a kids' crusade at the end of it. Because whenever the 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 minister got done, the Sunday school kids that were there all went to the front just like it was any other service, and lifted their hands. And Sister Kim and your family, Tony, and people in that church all went up front and started praying kids through to the Holy Ghost at David's funeral. I don't think David would have it any other way. Yes, it was you amazing. You know, I, the older I get, the more I miss David every day. And it, it hurts to know that my daughter Olivia will never know him. But... I have a feeling that he knows her. Yes, he does. And uh, just and he prayed prayed those of those yeah. handkerchiefs. Yeah, it's just stuff that that we cherish. Explain the handkerchiefs. So, um, it wasn't my idea originally, um, but when we found out David uh, was gonna uh, pass away um, and he was not gonna fight it, uh, someone in our movement. Um, was very gracious, and he called all these different ministers um, around that that had connections with the Ramses. Well, that was Ryan that yeah. did that, and Ryan actually grew up. His mother helped us with street rage, and he grew up in the ministry helping us as ch- as a child, and grew up. And then he called saying, "I want to send y'all on one last vacation." Yeah, and we said, "Well, you better do it fast." And so. Uh, he started calling those churches, and, and we got we got together, and we went on that one last vacation together, and um, we knew that David was pretty bad at that time, and uh, we knew that uh, death was imminent unless God prevailed, which He chose not to. But um, we went out and we bought some handkerchiefs because I knew um, Meredith and I, our child or children. Um, we have one now that I know of, <laughs> uh, but uh, would never get to know um, Poppy. So we got out and got some handkerchiefs, and David anointed them and uh, prayed over his future grandchildren. And uh, we put that, we got them stitched and uh, put in a shadow box, and it's in Olivia's room right now. And um, I pray that that handkerchief um, will be a guiding light to her. And uh, Ramsey as well, and our future children, if we decide to have some that, you know, they can hold on to knowing that they have someone looking out for them, which is, you know, something that we'll always cherish. But through all that, Kim, um, Street Rage opened many doors to you and David. Um, 
that little ministry that you guys thought that, you know, there's a place we can have church when you didn't have a church um, has opened a lot of many doors. Uh, on David's deathbed, he asked Craig and I, which is Sarah's husband, um, to travel with you. To don't let the ministry die, to make sure it continues. And um, a funny story is Brian was, he told his story about how David always was telling him statistics and telling him, you know, get involved in Sunday school. I remember whenever I moved here, David said, hey, um, what do you think about teaching Sunday school? I, like Brian, did not want to do it because I was a pastor's kid. I wanted to come to another church where I didn't have to do something. I wanted to sit down and be a, a saint. I, I took the spiritual response, and I said, oh, I'll pray about it. David very quickly said, I already prayed about it. I'll see you Sunday. <laughs> and uh, But um, through all that, um, David did ask Craig and I to continue the legacy that you guys started to build. It, it, it was just crazy to me that all the things that he could have asked for, all the things he was hoping for and wished for, the one thing he wanted more than anything was to continue the ministry. And um, so we've done that. Just since I've been, Craig's been with you for a little while, we've went all these different places. But tell us about the doors that God's opened. Well, when we first started the Street Rage Ministry, we were just doing it for our own local church there in Blyville. And... Uh, there was a, uh, a magazine, group magazine, had a contest going uh, for the Teacher of the Year. And this is a nationwide, non-denominal uh, Christian magazine. And so David entered my name, and I won. And so when I won— this Why don't was, you gloat about it a It little was bit. nationwide. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So she does. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, they actually sent a press release to our local newspaper and to our— uh, UPCI headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, children's director. And I, we got a phone call, and they said, tell us about this street rage. And so we began to tell them, and he said, we have a midwinter board meeting where the Sunday school directors for every state uh, in the United States and then also in Canada will be there. And I want you to come and tell them about this ministry. And so we went and did that, and you got we weren't licensed ministers. David wasn't licensed. We were just teachers in a, in a Sunday school class and doing street rage. And so when we went and told them before we finished, uh, there were several states' uh, representatives. Uh, the uh, district leaders came to us and said, we want you to come to Texas. We want you to come to Louisiana and share this with our district. And so from that... Uh, churches began to ask us to come and to do street rage and to do kids revivals. And that's kind of how we uh, started doing th this. We didn't have, we didn't pursue that. It's just like God opened the doors for us. And, um, and then in even our local ministry, uh, we got business sponsored. So we were not only reaching into the lower income areas, we were also reaching into the business world of our city civic organizations began to ask us to come and speak to them and i remember a very influential ladies group you know these were your your uh bank bankers wives these were your very rich people of the city asked us to come to their ladies group and we were telling them about it and i remember those ladies just sitting there just crying as they they felt our burden and our passion for what we were doing uh, it was, you know, it's just amazing how God has opened the doors, and uh, I am a firm believer. If God opens the doors, go through them. You may be scared to death, 
You may be leaving your comfort zone, but that's the only way that God can use you if you will avail yourself for him to do that. And so when you go through that door, God's going to open more doors, and then he's going to continue to open more doors for you as you go through them. So if somebody wants to book you for a kid's revival, how do they do that? Uh, they can call me on at 870-623-5771. That would probably be the best way. Check us out or check her out on Facebook. Um, you can connect through Facebook. You also have some material that you've written, um, some books that's for sale. Tell us a little bit about what you've got going on in that aspect. Well, uh, me and David wrote a book called Rage on the Devil's Turf. It's, it tells about the ministry, but it also has a lot of, I don't know, lessons on reaching kids. Um, we would do commitment services in our church, uh, which would be uh, a pool to get volunteers um, to help us with the ministry. And so we would kind of just share our burden. And so in that book are a lot of seminars that I actually teach at other churches now um, you know so that's one of the books and then we have written um, six different curriculums also that are like taught uh, for Sunday school teachers to teach in their classrooms or a children's church setting or they can even be taught on the street so let me ask you is there some some books that you're reading right now that you would really recommend to our listeners yes there are several books I thought about um, to share on this uh, one is called You'll Get Through This by Max Licato, and it talks about Joseph and all the things that he went through, and he compares it uh, to things that we may be going through in life. Very, very good. Um, Outlive Your Life is another one by Max Licato, and it talks about how you can make a difference, and he has a lot of stories that he shares with that. And then another one that I read read just recently is called Everybody Always, and it's Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People by Bob Goff. Those are three I thought I would share. So we want to thank you for spending some time with us after church prayer on a Monday night. Um, do you have a final word you want to leave with our listeners? Sure. Um, I just want to give some insight maybe to the church of some things they need to understand about kids. Uh, they are spiritual beings that God can use right now, and God has a purpose for them to fulfill. Um, the devil understands the power that is in a child, and that is why he tried to eliminate Moses. Uh, he tried to eliminate Jesus, but he knew that the power that was going to be uh, happening in their, their lives and how they were going to be used uh, to change and save a nation. And that's why the devil uh, is so rampant in our world today with abortion. Uh, it's time that the church understands that we cannot wait until these kids become youth age because the devil's not waiting for them to become youth age. He is trying to eliminate and war against our children right now. And what we put into our kids uh, will determine their future. Words of affirmation. And it doesn't matter. All these kids have come from different walks of life. Some of them are very shy. Some of them are very bold and obnoxious. Some have, have severe behavior problems. No matter their social status, we can... Uh, 
contribute to them. We can give words of faith to them. We can teach them that they can be an overcomer and that Jesus loves them and they are gifted by God and that God wants to use them. Uh, God called Samuel before he even knew the Lord and God is calling kids today to to become teachers and pastors uh, and he needs a teacher. He needs uh, an adult. He needs a pastor uh, to to be an Eli in their life and to teach them that God is calling them and that they can listen for his voice and how they can respond to him. You know, Sister Kim, uh, watching you uh, through the years do your seminars and do uh, uh, Street Rage and doing uh, different children's revivals, uh, i got to say that there's, there's one seminar that really stands out to me or the lesson that you did that really stood out to me, and that's the story of Cripple Corn. Uh, Cripple Corn is, is... Why are you t- smiling so big? <laughs> Cripple Corn is Tony and my favorite story you oh, tell. Oh, Cripple Corn! Yeah, we, Tony and I always crack jokes about how is this... Is she going to tell Cripple Corn again? Is she going to tell Cripple Corn again? And your lessons are always so impactful, and, and I, I'm sure your seminars are all the same. Uh, I, of course, uh, I've... I've seen uh, several times you bring out the snake and tell the story of the Indian boy and the snake. Uh, Will you tell us here at the conclusion uh, about one of your seminars and and how is it important that our listeners know about it? Well, this one is called Your Stone of Impact. And I, um, I was at a church listening to a man preach, and he made this statement, and I actually wrote it in my, or I typed it in my phone so that I would not forget it. But he said, I want the devil to have a wanted poster in hell of me because Mm. I'm making such an impact for God's kingdom. And uh, an impact, when you have an impact with a car, uh, it is something that collides forcibly. And, you know, usually the paint from that other car is going to end up being on your car because of the impact that you made. And so in my life, I want to collide forcibly with someone's life to where I have become a part of them because I have impacted their life. And um, as I was working on this seminar, uh, I just started thinking about David and how um, you know, Samuel went to the house looking to anoint a king, and out of all the sons of Jesse, it wasn't none of the ones he thought it would be, but it was David who was out on the shepherd's field. And when he brought him back from that shepherd's field, God spoke to Samuel and said, he is the one to anoint. And so just looking at five areas of David's life real quickly is that on those five, let me just back up a little bit. When when David went to kill Goliath, we all know that he picked up five smooth stones. And when he threw that stone with that slingshot, I believe God forcibly got a hold of that stone and guided that stone right to that, that Goliath's head and uh, knocked him down where David could cut his head off. So just real quick, the five stones, five areas of David's life is the first one is the stone of a personal relationship with God. And... Uh, David cultivated a relationship with God when he was a nobody. When he was out on the back, uh, the backside, you know, looking for sheep, he uh, practiced. He, 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 he sung psalms to God. He wrote those psalms. He was known as a man after God's own heart. 
So he was a, as a heart panted after the water brook, so panted my soul after thee, O God. And so David cultivated that personal relationship with God. And so if we want to have a stony of impact, we've got to do that in our own life. We can't, you know, we can't just minister to people and not have that personal relationship with God. It's not getting a lesson together. It's not doing that children's event, not spending time with kids, not doing Bible studies, not organizing and planning a calendar. But the most important thing that you can do is to have that personal relationship with God. Second stone is a stone of preparation. When David was back there, you know, watching those sheep, he didn't waste his time. He practiced his harp. He, he wrote the words, the Psalms, and he uh, practiced his sling. And so, you know what? He didn't just uh, let that time go and waste it, but he, he prepared. And when it was time for God to use him, he knew how to play the harp for, for King Saul. He knew how to use that slingshot. And when God, we're always a lot of times wanting to, we wanting to, we look at, we want to be right in the pulpit first thing, you know, but we got to prepare before we get to that place. God's not going to just elevate right. us until we have surrendered and humbled ourselves to him and prepared for what God wants to use us for. And uh, it's through that preparation that God meets us and leads us into those realms he wants to use us. And the third stone was the stone of obedience. And David was obedient to his father. Uh, when, his, when his dad asked him to go and bring lunch to his brothers training in war, you know what? There wasn't a lot of action uh, watching those sheep. But, you know, he did what his, his father asked him to do, even when he knew his brothers were going to probably talk bad about him. And they thought he was just coming to see the war. And, and, uh, but, you know what? He was obedient to what God wanted him to do. And then that stone of divine moment, David had probably walked that trek many times where he was going to Goliath. But when he got there, it was a divine moment. It was a divine moment that God had set up for him, and it changed his life forever. And it's interesting to note that all of the other people were hiding in the caves, all the other Israelites, but David was not afraid of that giant because he knew that God would fight with him. And later on, because of that divine moment, there was a time where David's nephew, there was a giant that was fixing to kill David because David was of older age. But David's nephew stepped in and he killed the giant. And so that divine moment that David had had years ago was also imparted into his nephew and it impacted a nation. And then the last stone was not my power, but God's. And there's things that we cannot do uh, in our own strength. We, we can have that relationship with God. We can be prepared for what God wants. We can obey him and we can walk in divine moments. But ultimately, it's going to be that stone that's in our hands. It's going to become in God's hand. And he is the one that is going to make the difference. And he is the one that's going to make that impact on a person's life that's going to bring them to him. I hope that this podcast has found uh, you in a time of which you've been in prayer about what is your next step and, and what is the fu- what does the future hold for you and and where can you find a place of burden and I hope that you've picked up on tonight the burden of Sister Ramsey the, this burden for for children and, and it's a ministry that sometimes it seems ugly because you've got to clean noses and and you, there's kids that you bring in they may smell funny and and you may get unfair criticism levied against you and there there are people that that think well why are you spending time on a Saturday 
with, with these kids in this, this impoverished neighborhood whenever you could be doing so many other things. But I hope this podcast finds an individual that's looking for something to grab a hold of and give a lasting uh, the lasting portion of your life to and your burden to because these children... They all have a future, and they need someone that's like you to be able to impact them and administer them and to love them on those Saturdays and love them when they smell funny and love them when their nose is runny because there's going to come a day when the nose isn't runny anymore, they don't smell funny anymore, but they've become into maturity and they've, they've grown up. And you want to be the kind of person that somebody somewhere, maybe they're working in a bank now or or they're, who knows where life ends up ultimately taking these young people. But if they do anything for the kingdom of God, if they change the course of where their family is currently heading, if their children don't grow up smelling bad and you have a part of that, what a jewel in your crown when you make it to glory. This has been The Crucial Conversation.